The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 406. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours. Truly, you can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get a free class when you do enroll 10 Myths of American History, and you get the best deals on new and forthcoming courses. I've got a new course out right now. You're going to want it. The original is papers, but I've got all kinds of great classes there. And every time you purchase one of those classes, you help support the show. Keep this show free of charge. You can also go to brianmcclanahan.com. Click on that support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way. You can get a book plate if you want one of my autographs or one of my books. I've got many of those as well. My latest is Southern Scribbling, 60 Essays in Defense of the Southern Tradition. You're going to want that book, and you can get your autograph if you get a book plate. You can also click on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com, get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. I mean, I've got all kinds of things, from shirts and uh, skins for electronic devices to stickers to wall clocks. I mean, there's all kinds of cool stuff out there. So get that Brian McClanahan Show logo and all those things. You can also go to Learn True, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. I teach there with Tom and a lot of great other, other great instructors. So you're going to want that website as well. And if you go through Learn True, T-R-U-E, Learn True History, you throw a few pennies my way in doing that. So lots of great ways to support the show financially. But the most important thing you can do is spread the word. Get people thinking locally and acting locally by spreading the word, by sharing this podcast on show, social media, rating it where you get your podcasts. Listen to them when they come out because that boosts the podcast as you get more listens early on. It moves up the charts instead of listening to it you know, a week or two out. The faster you listen to it, the better. It moves the podcast up. If you want people thinking locally and acting locally, Get them involved in this podcast. Send me your show suggestions. Now, this is actually a listener-generated episode today, so I do these. And this is, I got several emails about this. And again, I don't always respond to your emails, but I do read them. I got several emails about this in this New South Carolina law that was just passed and the governor signed, which has been immediately challenged by uh, Planned Parenthood, I think, in court. But it's their new heartbeat law in South Carolina, which would essentially, I mean, ban abortions, right? I mean, that's the point of the law. Now, I want to talk about this in relation to federalism, not the law itself, but in relation to federalism. And there's this great book out by the Independent Institute. It's entitled, In All Fairness, Equality, Liberty, and the Quest for Human Dignity. And there's an essay in here by Bill Watkins. Now, Bill Watkins is a very good legal scholar. He's a, he's a fellow at the Independent Institute. I don't always agree with what the Independent Institute does. They do put out some good books, though. Uh, and some things that I'll agree with and not agree with, but I mean, they're sometimes they shade to too much left libertarianism. But this particular essay is so good, and it's so good because it has a long discussion of St. George Tucker. Now, Bill Watkins is certainly someone who believes 
in that part of the Southern tradition. And as a legal scholar, he pushes originalism. That's a wonderful thing. And St. George Tucker, of course, is one of those important figures in American originalism. St. George Tucker wrote the first full-scale, in-depth study of the United States Constitution. And he is often called America's Blackstone. I mean, this is a man that went out and even looked at Blackstone and edited that. I mean, so he is so important as a legal mind in early American history. You can't get around St. George Tucker. But I dare say, if you asked most of your judges and lawyers in America, who is St. George Tucker, most of them would scratch their head and say, I have no idea. But if you asked them and said, who is John Marshall of Joseph Story? Oh, yeah. Stories, commentaries of the Constitution. So important. John Marshall, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. So important. But these... Judges like Spencer Rowan and St. George Tucker, legal minds, are, I mean, look, more important than John Marshall or Joseph Story when it comes to understanding the Constitution, right? Joseph Story's commentaries on the Constitution flipped the entire process on its head. He took the writings of the opponents of the document and said, here is a clear example of what the Constitution was supposed to mean. Because they warned about executive power, that means we should have executive power. Right? This is what he's doing in his commentaries. It's, it's preposterous. But this is what people think is originalism. That's not originalism. If that, was, if, if that had happened, if the, if the proponents of the document hadn't shouted these people down, essentially, this is the whole point of my originalist papers class, if the proponents of the document hadn't shouted those people down and said, you're wrong for saying these things, the Constitution never would have been ratified. If the founding generation sniffed, the Constitution would have created the modern elected king. They wouldn't have ratified the document. Now, Hamilton might have. I mean, look, Hamilton stands up in June of 1787 and says, yeah, we're going to get an elected king one day. Let's just skip over the misery and go right to it. So was he correct? Absolutely he was correct. There's something you can... I mean, look, all the things I could say about Hamilton... The man understood what was going to happen. He just wanted to skip over all the heartache and get there right away. He also said, though, that if we're going to have incompatible things, let's just secede. Let's get out. Let's, let's have this break up now. Let's not try to force each other together. We didn't listen then. We're not listening now. We should, but we're not. So this little part of this book and the... The title of this chapter is The Retreat from Equality Before the Law. The Retreat from Equality Before the Law. And I love this essay. Because, again, he gets into Tucker. Now, he goes through a litany of cases that have to do with what we know now as incorporation. That is the real enemy of federalism. It's not the general government even though they pass a lot of stupid legislation and, and a lot of stupid regulations and unconstitutional legislation, unconstitutional regulations, they do that constantly. They pass all of this stuff. That's, that, though, is not the real enemy of federalism in America. It's the federal court system. It's what Raul, Raul Berger pointed out in Government by Judiciary. And we've had all kinds of people uh, write about how dangerous the federal judicial branch is to liberty in America. 
And then, of course, you've got the left libertarians who think it's great. Incorporation is great because you can incorporate the First Amendment. You can make sure that the First Amendment now applies to all the states. The dirty little secret is that every state already has a so-called First Amendment in its state constitution. So if they want to bash the the state government, just use the state constitution. There's no reason to incorporate. In fact, that wasn't that was pointed out over and over again in the ratification process. We don't need a Bill of Rights because all the states already have one. If you put these Bill of Rights down, what you're saying, in essence, is that, well, we think the general government can infringe on freedom of speech. But it couldn't. It had no power to do it. This is what James Wilson consistently said. It had no power to do things that weren't specifically enumerated in the Constitution. When you go to this heartbeat ban, heartbeat law, essentially, in South Carolina, I want the opponents of that law to point out where the general government has any authority to rule in this particular case. They don't. They're having to stretch the Constitution six ways to Sunday to figure it out. And that's the Roe v. Wade decision. It was a bad decision. It was a decision that didn't even fit with originalism. It didn't fit with anything. It was a political decision, and that's a dangerous decision. And so William Watkins, in this essay, gets into that. He starts talking about incorporation. Incorporation really is the enemy. It's the enemy of good government, and it's the enemy of uh, nationalism, or I should say it's the proponent of nationalism, it's the enemy of federalism in America. Incorporation is the reason the general government thinks they can pass any law they want, and the states just have to deal with it, or that they can rule on all these different issues because, of course, they think they have complete control of state governments because the Constitution then is supreme and the Bill of Rights applies to everybody in the states. It does for federal law. I mean, there's no doubt about it. The federal government can't pass a law that bans free speech. The federal government can't pass a law that bans firearms. They can't. They'll do it, but they can't. And that's because of the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, by the way. But the states can do all of these things. In fact, when the Bill of Rights was ratified, there were three states in the North that had state-established churches. States could infringe on free speech. And when we had the sedition law in 1798, so egregious. Opponents pointed out, well, yeah, I mean, the general government can't do it. The states can if they want to. The states can pass sedition laws. As long as it doesn't violate the state constitution. This is something I've been saying over and over again for now going on five years on this podcast. The states can do whatever they want as long as it does not violate the state bill of rights or state law. And as long as, I mean, there are certain parts of the Constitution, Article 1, Section 10, they can't violate. But that's it. The whole thing of secession, too. Secession's illegal in the U.S. Constitution. Where? Where does it say it's illegal? Is it a power not, is it a power that the states don't have? Is it in Article 1, Section 10, you can't leave the Union? Is that explicitly stated? If it's not explicitly stated, it's not illegal. It says they can't form confederacies, but that's why they're in the Union. But they can form confederacies if they're not in the Union, you see. It doesn't say they can't leave the Union. It's not a power denied by the Constitution to the states. So I want to go through this particular part of the essay. It's not a long part of the essay. 
about St. George Tucker. And because St. George Tucker is so important, I do cover St. George Tucker in my uh, Founding Fathers class. I cover him in my American Constitutions class. He's an important guy. I cover him in my Hamilton class. So lots of different classes to cover St. George Tucker. But I'm going to go through Bill Watkins, what he says about St. George Tucker. He says, St. George Tucker was born in 1752 in Bermuda. In 1771, Tucker immigrated to Virginia and studied law under George Wythe. During the Revolutionary War, Tucker led an expedition to Bermuda that captured a large quantity of military stores that would later be used by George Washington's army. Tucker distinguished himself in battle and was wounded during the Yorktown campaign. After the war, Tucker enjoyed a thriving law practice and was selected in 1790 to succeed George Wythe as professor of law at William & Mary. Tucker served as Virginia State Court judge and was appointed to the federal bench in 1813 by President James Madison. Tucker's greatest work was the annotated edition of William Blackstone's Commentaries on the Laws of England. In the words of historian Clyde N. Wilson, Tucker sought to republicanize Blackstone via extensive essays and notes. Tucker believed that the principles of popular sovereignty adopted during the and after the Revolution made much of English precedent inapplicable to the New World. Hence, Tucker worked to explain to his students the significance of the supplanting of parliamentary sovereignty and the adopting of other Republican institutions. During the first half of the 19th century, Tucker, Tucker's annotated commentaries was the textbook of American legal education. This is how important this guy was. If you took... If you were studying law in America in the early 19th century, you were studying St. George Tucker. Now, it's important to note, St. George Tucker is related to a whole bunch of important people in Virginia, among them John Randolph of Roanoke through marriage. He was uh, Randolph's stepfather. In his essay entitled View of the Constitution of the United States, Tucker noted that with the American Revolution, enlightened thinkers drew a clear distinction between sovereignty and government. The former, Tucker wrote, was found to reside in the people and to be unalienable from them, whereas the latter was but an instrument for exercising authority delegated by the people. So government is simply an instrument for exercising authority delegated by the people. The branches of government were simply servants and agents of the people. When referring to the people, Tucker did not have in mind the undifferentiated inhabitants of the 13 colonies. Instead, Tucker thought of the people of the states as sovereign. From the moment of the revolution, he explained, the former colonies became severally independent and sovereign states, possessing all the rights, jurisdiction, and authority that other sovereign states possesses. The Constitution of 1787, Tucker continued, was ratified by conventions of the people in each state. This mode of ratification featured the action of the people of those states in their highest sovereign capacity. Now, John Marshall would essentially agree with this, but John Marshall would say, well, wait a second, because he says this. John Marshall says this later on in one of his more infamous decisions. Well, of course we ratified in the states. How else were we supposed to do it? You couldn't have a national convention to do this, so we had to break it out in the states. You couldn't have had a convention of all the states ratify the Constitution because you couldn't have had enough delegates. So it had to be done in the states. But that didn't mean that it wasn't a national voice. That's tortured reasoning. Because as Tucker correctly points out, it was done by the states and the state ratifying conventions could reject or accept it by state. Nine states had to ratify the document. Not not, not nine uh, subdivisions of the general government, the people thereof. It's a, it's a compact between the states, not between the people, so ratifying the same. So Tucker is 
accurately pointing out what's happening here. John Marshall, John Marshall, oh, well, of course, we got to ratify in the states because that's all we had. Marshall's tortured logic has become, though, the accepted version of what happened when Tucker is the guy that people should be paying attention to. Not John Marshall, not Joseph Story, and certainly not Incorporation. From this point, Tucker reasoned that the Constitution was a federal compact through which the sovereign and independent states united themselves together by perpetual confederacy without each ceasing to be a perfect state. Absent a specific delegation of power to the general government, Tucker believed that the states retained every power and jurisdiction they possessed before ratification. The powers delegated to the federal government being all positive and enumerated, Tucker wrote. Whatever is not enumerated is retained. This is exactly what James Wilson said in the State House Yard speech in October of 1787, which, by the way, I cover in the Originalist Papers. And he wasn't alone. Lots of people said that in the ratification period. But we've lost that. Hopefully this podcast is helping resurrect that. But you've got to get people listening. It will violate accepted maxims of political law for a sovereign state to be deprived of any power by implication. Tucker then offered his cardinal rule of a constitutional interpretation. Quote, Since each state, in becoming a member of a federal republic, retains uncontrolled jurisdiction over all cases of municipal law, every grant of jurisdiction to the Confederacy in any such case is to be construed as special inasmuch as it derogates from the antecedent rights of the state making the concession. With the national government receiving special indefinite powers, Tucker believed, the courts should give much discretion to state legislative efforts. So what he's pointing out here is, look, everything which is not granted is retained. So if there's not a special and expressly enumerated power to the general government, that government has no power to do it. Now, when you go back to a lot of these things we're talking about here, the general government having a negative over state law, Tucker would be completely against that because nowhere in the Constitution does it give the general government to legislate on things like marriage, for example, or a host of other social issues, including this heartbeat bill. It wouldn't have any jurisdiction. Zero to Tucker. Zero. Now, on the other hand, it wouldn't have any jurisdiction over, say, uh, drug laws either. States can do that. And the left has been completely willing to flaunt federal authority. And flaunt, you know, we're, we're just not going to agree with it. We're going to flaunt our own power. We're going to make sure that we don't abide by the DEA. They're completely willing to do it. But if the right tries it in certain areas, well, that's you can't do that. You see, this is the hypocrisy of federalism in America. And the right gets upset with, oh, you can't do these things. We got the DEA. We have federal drug laws. You can't do these things. The left is just willing to take the stand, and the right usually isn't. The flip side of the coin was strict construction of federal powers, the sum of which all appears to be, Tucker wrote, that the powers delegated to the federal government are, in all cases, to receive the most strict construction that the instrument will bear, or the rights of a state or of the people, either collectively or individually, may be drawn into question. Absent this rule of construction, Tucker feared that the gradual and sometimes 
imperceptible usurpations of power will end in the total disregard of all the Constitution's intended limitations. Well, he was 100% correct. There's no limitation by the Constitution on federal power anymore. That's Joseph Story. That's John Marshall. They've done it. It's Alexander Hamilton. This is what they wanted. The Constitution doesn't limit power anymore. Because of his belief in popular sovereignty, Tucker was a proponent of judicial review, i.e., the power of the courts to review decisions of other departments of government. However, Tucker believed that judges should not strike a legislative enactment unless the measure was at an irreconcilable variance with a constitution. If there was any doubt about the legitimacy of a statute, it should be resolved in favor of the people's elected representatives by permitting the law to stand. This is especially so with federal courts reviewing state laws and the broad gamut of state powers. One might protest that Tucker's advice on constitutional construction was pre-epimatics and thus inapplicable to the 14th Amendment's due process and equal protection clauses. Such an objection might be valid if an effort were made to render the amendment nugatory. However, so long as one keeps in mind that the purpose of the 14th Amendment, nothing in Tucker's formula of construction offends. The Supreme Court, when first considering the Civil War amendments in the early 1870s and the slaughterhouse cases, correctly noted that one pervading purpose was found in all of them. This was, according to the court, the freedom of the slave race, the security and firm establishment of that freedom, and the protection of the newly made freeman and citizen from the oppressions of those who had formerly exercised unlimited dominion over him. So, they're saying that was the only area which this thing applied. In other words, there's no incorporation. Watkins continues, Thus Tucker's wisdom holds true so long as we recognize that whatever authority the states possessed in 1787 to make distinctions based on skin color was circumscribed by the 14th Amendment. Skin pigmentation is not a constitutionally appropriate characteristic to use when burdening or benefiting people through government action. Moreover, nothing in the 14th Amendment compels a substantive understanding of due process. And this is the key to everything. Due process. What is due process? As Watkins points out in this chapter, due process is you follow all the procedures. This is what the founding generation thought. You have all the procedures to deny someone of life, liberty, or property. You followed all the procedures. The person had a court case. You know, court here. They had a hearing in court. They had a jury. Whatever it is, you have all the procedures. But substantive due process is something else. That means the legislature can't even pass a law that might do this. Well, the founding generation didn't agree with substantive due process. Now, I will say one thing in here. The first real case of substantive due process in America in terms of uh, a legal underpinning of that is the Dred Scott decision. That was a substantive due process case. And so... He says it was something else, but I mean, that's where we have substantive due process. And it's dangerous because this is what the left uses to ensure that states can't, cannot pass laws that do these things. But as long as the person is legally given all the procedures, well, then they can be denied these things. Tucker examined the Fifth Amendment's due process clause in his views of the Constitution and instructed that due process is, an, is by indictment or presentation of good and lawful men where such deeds are be done in due manner, or by writ original of the common law. Tucker further stated that due process must then be had before a judicial court or a judicial magistrate. Due process is procedural and nothing more. There's no substantive due process. It's all procedural. Did you have a court date? And then, of course, the courts can review where things appropriately handled there. 
Applying Tucker's wisdom to equal protection analysis would end the judicially created three tiers of scrutiny. I'm not going to get into what Watkins talked. He's getting into legal weeds there. But certainly, you're saying there's no substantive due process anymore. Courts would continue to closely review state laws that distinguish between citizens based on race. Any law reminiscent of the Black Codes, for example, or modern efforts at affirmative action would be presumptively unconstitutional because of some absent some compelling state justification. So he's saying anything that's based on race, if you follow Tucker, would all be unconstitutional. In other words, critical race theory would be unconstitutional. Black codes would be unconstitutional. Affirmative action would be unconstitutional. All of it would be unconstitutional because you're using race as a litmus test. And he's right. In fact, I've seen that there's a, a group out that's really that's putting trying to put forward some uh, legal challenges to critical race theory being based on civil rights acts. Because it is. I mean, it's a violation. If you took out any of the language in that and replaced it with a minority group, well, this stuff would be completely panned. But because it's not, it isn't. And this is the sad thing about it. But for all other classifications, something akin to the Railway Express analysis would be the norm. So long as the matter regulated is within the state's traditional authority, i.e., outside of those powers delegated to the federal government, and the classification rationally furthers in some manner the state's goal, then the federal courts must adopt the law. In our examples, dealing with firearm ownership and driving privileges, common sense and Railway Express reveal no constitutional infirmity. The classifications are not based on race, reasonably differentiate between citizens, and bear a fair relation to the objects of public safety and highway safety. Arguments could be made that say, on it, say only individuals convicted of violent crimes should be prohibited from, pe- from possessing firearms. A tax cheat or counterfeiter, one might assert, does not represent the same danger to public safety as a burglar or arsonist and thus should not have the rights infringed upon. While this is a valid point, it is a point to be made and considered in a legit legislative rather than a judicial arena. In our republican form of government, we do not need nor should we desire the courts to dig any deeper then determining that, one, the classification is not racial, two, there exists a plausible justification for the classification, and three, the classification has some nexus with the state's declared legislative goal. The nationalizing of marriage is but another step along the path of judicial monarchs ruling under the guise of due process and equal protection. There is much more to come. Some liberal scholars have long argued that broad societal groups, such as the poor and the homeless, should be viewed as a suspect class akin to race, They would have the court strictly scrutinize any law that might arguably disadvantage low-income individuals. For instance, a state budget law reducing fundings for unemployment benefits, subsidized school lunches, or Head Start-type programs would require the state to show furtherance furtherance of a compelling interest with a budget cut narrowly tailored to support the interest. So, I mean, look, he's right here. What we're getting to with substantive due process is the most dangerous thing we can see. Incorporation, as well, is one of the most dangerous things we can do. The challenge to the South Carolina law is going to fall along these lines. And if the Supreme Court had any guts, they would strike down the challenge. They would uphold the state's law. In other words, they'd overturn Roe v. Wade, one of the things they would do. But because it's, it's a bad decision, not based on any understanding of the 14th Amendment or the original Constitution. That's why it's a bad decision. Archibald Cox, writing in the mid-1960s, noted that once loosened, the idea of equality is not easily cabined. 
This is especially concerning when we remember the admonition of Gottfried Dietz that equality competes with freedom. Through modern due process and equal protection jurisprudence, the courts have stretched the 14th Amendment beyond the limited objectives of its framers and has made itself, in the words of Justice Harlan, a super legislature. We have what Hayek would recognize as a teleocratic, purpose-driven judicial system rather than a nomocratic, law-governed one. The purpose, of course, is animated by a sense of egalitarianism incongruent with a understanding of equality before the law, a libertarian or Hayekian understanding of before the law. For instructions in judicial modesty, we, we should turn to the American Blackstone. In Tucker's work, we find constitutional first principles and proven rules of construction in light of the broad powers remaining with the states. Our laboratories of democracy state laws should not be struck absent of an irreconcilable variance with the 14th Amendment's plain language and certain purpose. Applying Tucker's constitutional insights, jurists should humble themselves and abandon the making of policy. Constitutionalization of prevailing sentiments renders our system inflexible and precludes a vigorous democratic debate in which the people can be persuaded of the righteousness of new ideas and the wrongness of old ones and make the necessary reforms in accordance with the rule of law. Great essay, and the, the book is very good. There's another essay in there by Jason Morgan, who's also one of my favorite writers, uh, a libertarian, uh, actually a professor in Japan. He's, he's very good. Uh, but regardless, um, the problem in America, government by judiciary, judiciary, comes down to incorporation and this substantive due process. And I wanted to bring this up and bring up St. George Tucker because I think that's this is the guy we need to be paying attention to. So there is an edited volume of Tucker's work by Clyde Wilson, and Watkins brought that up. It's very, very good. You can get it at Liberty Fund. So if you go to libertyfund.org, uh, they have the book there. Just look up Clyde Wilson, St. George Tucker, and you can get it. The introductory essay was edited heavily. Clyde's original essay on St. George Tucker is found at Abbeville Institute. If you look up Clyde Wilson, St. George Tucker at Abbeville Institute, you'll find the original version of the essay, not the version that was completely edited by Liberty Fund. But still, you should read St. George Tucker. And if you do, you won't walk away from those works with a nationalist view of the Constitution. And I think Watkins has done a tremendous job here showing that the 14th Amendment is not, should not be interpreted to present substantive due process or incorporation. All right. We need real federalism. That's thinking locally and acting locally. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.